Good morning, everybody. So we're working, we've been working through the, the lectionary, and if you don't know what the lectionary is, it's just some agreed upon readings of the Bible throughout the year. Um, so there's many churches that will be focusing on this passage this week. So I, I kind of like that. When, when we don't have series, we just go back to the lectionary and, and kind of move along with all of these other churches across around the world that will be thinking about this passage right now. And I, yeah, that's kind of cool, eh, um, to do that together separately. My dad used to say, that guy and I went to separate schools together. It's kind of the same thing. Um, so we're in John 10, uh, John 10, 1 to 18. And I, I often read from the NLT. So if you're reading in your King James, it doesn't really line up all that well, but NLT on the screen, okay? I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over a wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. After he gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. But the true sheep did listen to them. Sorry, the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for money and doesn't really care about my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. It's an interesting story, eh? We have to put it in context to really get it. So... Jesus has just healed a blind man. Did I talk? We talked about this last week? I don't know. Mark must have talked about it last week, right? I was here. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> he did talk about it last week. And, and so this man had been born blind, right? And, and it's another story, kind of like Job, right? We just did this thing on Job where it was all about blame and shame, right? Even the disciples, at the very beginning, their, their question about this man that was born blind was, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? They thought that the blindness was due to someone's sin, right? And, and of course, Jesus doesn't enter into that binary conversation, this or that. Was it this or was it that? Was it the parents or was it the son? No, Jesus does what he always does. He takes the third route, right? He says it wasn't the parents or the man's fault, but watch how God uses this thing that you're questioning for his glory, right? Watch how God 
uses brokenness. Okay. I don't think for a second that God caused um, the man to be blind, right? Wouldn't that be terrible if he caused him just so that he could do this thing? No, I, I don't think that. Rather, we see the character of God in Jesus who looks for beauty in the midst of terrible things, in the midst of brokenness, right? So the crazy thing is, is Jesus heals this man, and the man goes to the synagogue where he can be uh, called clean again or whole, and what do the Pharisees do, the leaders? They kick him out of the synagogue. They remove him from his community, right? They mistreat the man because he questions them. He doesn't really, really question them. He just says, you know, tell me. He, he, well, that's a question, I guess. But Now, many of us, we, we probably don't care if we get kicked out of a church, right? In fact, some of us wear it like pride that we've been kicked out of a church. <laughs> I know, right? However, to be removed from a synagogue was to be removed from your entire community. All of community, social life, all of it, right? So, so the man had been a cast out. He was blind. People looked at him like he was a sinner, like the disciples. Well, I wonder who, what, why he's blind. He must have done something. Right. Then Jesus comes along and restores the physical, but on, on top of that, he restores the man's community. Right? The opportunity for community. And then the religious leaders push the man back out of community. So I, I just, Jesus finishes that, the last chapter in John 9, 31, 39 to 41. He says, I entered in this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees were standing nearby and, and asked him, are you saying we're blind? Jesus says back, if you were, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. So now we come to the passage of today. And Jesus is actually continuing the conversation with these Pharisees and with his, kind of teaching his disciples through it. And for me, this, this passage that we looked at today is pretty, is cool because it contains a lot of images. And I love to think in images, right? So he points out a couple pictures for us to kind of think about, to meditate on. And they're descriptive of him, right? He's pointing, painting a picture of himself, a self-portrait. He's a gate. He's a shepherd. And I would add a lamb. When I was thinking about that, I, I thought, we probably need a lot of little images of Jesus. I don't know that we could take the big full picture. And that's kind of interesting because if you think about it like communion, Jesus takes and breaks himself up into small pieces so that we can ingest, that we can, you know, put in our body, digest, that we can be fed through the imagery. So Jesus talks about this, this whole shepherd idea and sheep idea, and apparently it was common for, for towns to have a, one pen for all the sheep to go in. Sounds like a good idea to me, right? If you're a shepherd and you want to bring your sheep in from the day or from grazing, you could probably leave your sheep there and go catch some sleep without your sheep there. Sounds like a good plan. So they would have these areas walled off where the sheep could come, and they would go there, and they would be, they wouldn't wander off. Someone would be watching them. You know, since, since they didn't have a tag or microchip, the shepherds had to train their sheep differently than we do, right? Um, they, they taught them to follow their voice. 
that's much different than like my picture of how sheep are trained, right? Like I think of like a dog chasing them around or a pig if you've seen the movie, <laughs> right? But you have to remember that in the culture, sheep were super important, not only for eating, but for sacrifice. If a dog bit a sheep, it could no longer be used for sacrifice. So I love this kind of thought process where the, the shepherds train the sheep to follow their voice. And the, and the sheep would just follow them out. That's amazing. Just a beautiful picture. But Jesus begins this whole passage with saying, he, with the image of a gate. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. What's a gate? You know, it, it could be seen as a way to keep people in or a way to keep people out, right? It could be seen as a security device. But for me, the gate is more about being a passage, right? From the front yard to the backyard. It, sure, maybe it provides some security, but the reality is the gate would be the weakest point of a fence or a, of, a, of a pen. It would actually be the weakest point, right? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. And it's, it's funny how we often hear this passage. I almost think we hear it as negative. We hear that no one can come to the Father but instead, we could hear the invitation to way, to truth, and to life. It, it's sort of, to me, the same invitation it is to seek first the kingdom of God. It's an invitation. It's not to keep people out. That, I don't believe it's that kind of gate. Like, when my kids were younger, right, they would play in the backyard. And I had a gate. Cole learned how to open it really, really young, really young age. Um, so he wasn't a very good sheep. Um, but if, if other came by, I didn't keep the gate closed. No, we opened it to invite them in to play. Um, so it was a passageway not to keep people out or to keep people in, although it was to keep coal in. It says, the one who enters through the gate is the true shepherd. We believe that Jesus is God who become, became human, took on flesh, the incarnation. Depends on how you want to describe that. And so Jesus is the image of full life, right? And Jesus enters into the sheepfold. This is really interesting. He enters in to the gate, through the gate. That's what, that's what the passage says. What a beautiful thought process, right? So many leaders don't enter into the lives of their people. They don't take the path that the people that they lead do. Right? We have lots of examples from current government, actually, of telling us what to do and then doing the exact opposite and getting caught, right? I don't think it matters which party we're talking about because they're all, <laughs> I've seen it in most of them. Um, we also see this in many religious leaders, right? But the shepherd enters in. They take the same route as the sheep. Jesus could have possibly shown up like a rock star, right? Fully grown, fully mature, ready to go, full of knowledge, full of, you know, great speaking, great ability, all of those things. But instead, he shows up like a baby that needs to be breastfed. Do we ever think about that? 
Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. As a competitive person, that just bothers me. Why would you just want to be a good shepherd? I want to be a great shepherd (laughs) or an excellent shepherd or the champion of the world shepherd. Sorry, that's just me. But looking at the original word there, a better translation or another translation could be actually the beautiful shepherd. And I like that image so much better, right? Not, not in an aesthetic way, but beauty in character, beauty in action, and beauty of thought. For me, that's just a much clearer picture of Jesus as shepherd. He acts in a way that is beautiful. The beautiful shepherd doesn't beat his sheep to follow him or use fear tactics with dogs. He calls them, and because he's cared for them, they want to follow him to the places of peace, to pastures, to still waters. And a couple of these images that, were, were, that are in this passage do feel like they're, ex- they're exclusive, right? The gate and then the sheep knowing his voice. But in the, right in the middle of this section, we, we have to notice that Jesus says, I have sheep that are not in this sheepfold. All of this imagery of sheep, shepherd, sheepfold comes from Old Testament. And, and it was based out of things like from David, who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Which we all know. But so did all the people listening to Jesus, right? It was used to illustrate the people of God, the chosen ones, the chosen ones. So when the people heard Jesus speaking about the shepherd, they would have thought about Israel as what he's talking about. And remember, Jesus is already, he's already in conversation with these religious leaders, Right? They think that they are the shepherds of Israel. They are the chosen of the chosen. They're the gatekeepers, the law enforcers, and they believe that they're the ones, the chosen ones. And, and Jesus does enforce this chosenness a bit, right? But then he throws other images, this image of another sheepfold and other sheep to show them that the kingdom of God is bigger than the chosen nation of Israel, that it's bigger than the chosen group that's gathered here at Royal City this morning, that it extends to the church of the city that Neil talked about this morning, right? The chosenness of Israel or the chosenness of the sheep was only to show God's plan. It wasn't about excluding the rest of the world, but about showing them how good God was. Somehow it was turned into exclusion of the rest of the world or even people in Israel that didn't fit into the leader's picture of perfect, right? Like the blind man. I think Jesus keeps going back to the blind man. So we have the gate and the shepherd. And the last image that we have is is Jesus as sheep. And I know that it's not explicit here. I just think it's implied. Right? Jesus talks about sacrifice. He says, "I I, I sacrifice my life voluntarily, I lay it down, right? There were only a couple things in that time that could be used as sacrifice. Number one, sheep, right? And the author of John had already compared Jesus to this Lamb of God for sacrifice in John one twenty nine. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting, eh? Lambs are weak and defenseless. And Jesus is identified with being a lamb. So in the parable today, Jesus enters through the gate 
and then he becomes the gate. He is the beautiful shepherd, and he becomes one of the sheep. I think that's confusing. Is that confusing for anybody else, or is it just me? I love that, actually. I love the confusion. In fact, St. Ignatius, in his spiritual exercises, encourages us to pray for shame and confusion. He seemed to think that if spiritual answers came too easily, they were likely way off base. So they needed to be re-looked at. They needed to be looked at again. So the entire first week of the St. Ignatian exercises are based on pondering good and evil, right? Starting with the original sin story in Genesis, right, of Adam and Eve. We see that in this, this shame of Adam and Eve as they experience their nakedness and run and hide, but I imagine we also see their confusion as when he comes, he clothes them instead of kills them. This, this has always been super, uh, something I'm super curious about, right? Because I really don't know that we can experience the beautiful shepherd that lays down his life for us until we experience the shame of sin. That brings up a lot of questions that I'm not going to answer, right? I probably can't. But in Jesus' movement from entering, or from entering the gate to becoming gate and being the beautiful shepherd, to becoming the lamb, we should experience shame and confusion. Shame at our actions that make us hide from God and confusion at the great love with which God responds to us. In the parable, Jesus moves and he becomes. He's the beautiful shepherd. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. That just stirs something in me. This movement of, of Jesus is downward, right? We would see the shepherd as higher than the sheep, but Jesus moves downward into the humble position of sheep, into the sacrifice. And I believe that we're called to follow this path of descent, this whole idea of entering, gate, or entering the gate and becoming gate, being a beautiful shepherd and becoming the sheep, right? But that path of descent means giving up lots of things, reputation, status, privilege. So my question that I would leave us with this morning is how do we follow Jesus into this path of moving and becoming? How do we enter the gate then become the gate for others? How are we beautiful shepherds for others and become lambs for sacrifice? Maybe you have a comment on that. Maybe you don't, but we'll offer a chance to respond. I'm just thinking about people that I provide care for. <clears throat> and I'm thinking that this, this passage and this analogy could be really difficult for people um, who've experienced different sorts of trauma. So mm -hmm. to invite someone through a gate into an enclosed space um, is not an appealing image for some. And how, um, not to rewrite scripture, but how we can make this analogy a safe one. Hmm. Um, I first thought about it when you mentioned inviting kids going by through the gate <laughs> into your backyard. <laughs> so tonight, like, yeah, some people would see that as, as a potentially hazardous thing, not knowing you. Well. But, Pastor doesn't help, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. So that is pretty interesting how, like, um, imagery 
can be problematic for people, right? It's, it's what I love about um, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of of the message because it kind of addresses some of those. Maybe it doesn't address trauma. Maybe we need a trauma-informed Bible. Yeah. Uh, but I love that. Even that, like, provides some confusion for us to say, how do we, how do we um, translate that for someone? Oh, thanks, Jen. Whenever a, a preacher that I ever see says, it is clear in scripture, dot, 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 I immediately tune out. Because I don't read scripture like that at all. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about, excuse me, about confusion, and that is most of my experience of scripture. So whenever, whenever a pastor or a religious leader in the church is dogmatic about a specific interpretation or specific doctrinal line, I immediately get really big questions, like what are you trying to do here? I think, I think it's Kierkegaard who points out that there is a kind of sin of, dis or a kind of despair, he calls it, of certitude, of trying to pursue too much certainty. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how much I think the, the, the myopic pursuit of doctrinal certainty makes certain communities and certain leaders prone not only to being complicit in many of the injustices of the world, but often actively participating and perpetuating them. Huh. And I think when, when we're reading scripture, especially like several thousand years removed and several thousand kilometers removed from where it was written, I think we need to be very careful as to how certain we are about certain things, especially because, I mean, in my own life, when I had very strong and obdurate ideas of who God is, God almost takes that as a challenge, and he just, dis he just decides to be recalcitrant in all of the very specific ways to completely upset how you think he works. And so, I, I guess I'm just reminded of, of J.I. Packer's line. He writes in uh, Knowing God, notional correctness is not the end of Christianity. <laughs> and what he means by that is having the correct theology is actually not the point. Uh, so, we should probably be more confused than we're comfortable with being. Oh, let's just pass it down. Let's just pass it down because Tom wants one too. And then after Tom will. All right. Got another comment conga line over here. Um, <laughs> I think I like to think about sermons too from a place of, of application in my own life. And, and I think that this sermon stood out to me because it really highlighted the place that Jesus took in terms of humility and, and exemplifying that. And I think about how I can do that as a Christian and in leadership context, you know, like when I've led worship, I mean, I, I try to be very just open and humble in that like, hey, I'm not having a good week up here, and here I am leading worship sort of thing. I'll let you guys know about that. When, I'm, when I was leading with uh, Sunday school kids, we'd ask, how are our weeks going? And sometimes I'd tell little kids, I was like, I'm actually feeling kind of sad today, and kids aren't used to that. Uh, and then when you're, when you're a teacher like me, I'm just open with my students, and I'm like, how are you guys doing? And sometimes I'll tell them if I'm happy, sometimes I'll tell them if I'm not. But when you can have that place of humility instead of trying to 
uphold a strong facade, I think that it helps really make way for meaningful relationship. And I think that's what Jesus was ultimately able to accomplish with us. When I look at like what, what Jeremy was talking about too with the, the certainty of scripture, I don't know if you can be entirely certain. I think when you think about scripture as being entirely certain based on one doctrinal view, um, it, it seems so high and mighty and inaccessible. Um, but when you're coming from a place of like journeying through scripture and being in community with others and being open and honest with how you're feeling, you can get to that place of humility that honestly Jesus exemplified for us. And, and I think that's the most powerful example of God's love for us in scripture because Kevin, you mentioned that, yeah, he came as, as a baby. He didn't come as some mighty warrior. He didn't come as some rock star. You didn't see Steven Tyler just coming into Nazareth. Like, this was, this was a baby that grew into a man that was as much man as he was God. And, and that humility, I think, is a really important thing to, to learn from in our own lives. Yeah, just as a point, um, Jesus... Um Steven Tyler was not in the band Nazareth. He was in a different band. Aerosmith. Uh, for those of you that know what I'm talking about. Uh, but so what I love, the comment, the comment, and, and I believe this to be true, uh, I, I love when there's small core, right? So that's what, this is like the, kind of the trajectory of how I see Real Estate Mission on. What, what are our core beliefs? And we agree on those things. But those things that, like, the more we expand certainty, the less we have conversation, right? As soon as you say, I know exactly, you've stopped inviting relationship. I, we see it all the time. So we, we're looking for a small core of what, what we believe. What do we believe that's, like, small? And, and, and then let's, let's forget about this other stuff. Not forget about it. Let's be confused Let's enter into conversation around those things. Let's build community based on that. Unified here and go, I don't know. I'm confused. Anyway, I, I just heard that in there. When, when you were talking about a Bible that is more aware of trauma, I was thinking of a conversation I had with a missionary who was in Saharan Africa and she was talking about building house in the rock versus the sand. <laughs> and they knew going in there that that would not make any sense because the, the houses were built on the sand because it was cold and it kept the temperature well. And if you put your tent over it, the sand would stay cold through the day. Yeah. Um, but if you built your house on the rock, it wouldn't stay cold. It'd be hot and the rainwater would pour into your tent, which made no sense. So they took that Bible and switched out the words and switched the order because the point of the passage would be completely lost if they kept it the way it originally was. When I first heard that, I was like, young, I would say naive self went, well, you can't just like change stuff. But then as I've grown a little bit, it's like, okay, when you do, you have to be incredibly careful. But if there's a blatant like we can almost everybody agree what the point of this particular thing is saying. And we can all agree that in their situation, that isn't what they would hear. Okay, that makes sense. And just kind of made me chuckle when we were thinking of the trauma in terms of the w understanding the way somebody else would interpret something that's being said. Um, 
needs to be, that, that thinking needs to be used, um, and when it's not used, can be very dangerous. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close in prayer, and then um, if you want to continue the conversation after, that would be great. Um, let's, let's pray. God, thank you for the imagery of you both being and becoming. Or, and, and do show us what that means. How do we live that out? God, I think of what you call us to, and do we become more like you? Can we become more like you? Can we love others the way that you love us, even a fraction? Can you teach us? Can you show us? Amen. Now go in the grace and the peace and the love of the Holy Spirit. Amen.